Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Red? They have to paint me red before they chop me. It's a different religion from ours, I think. Uh, so this is the famous ring, eh? I'm in fear of my life, you know. Uh, this is the famous Beatles. So this is the famous Scotland Yard, eh? How long do you think you'll last? Can't say fair of that. Great train robbery, eh? How's that going? You don't believe us, do you? Chief Superintendent. Ringo, please. It's for you, the famous Ringo. Hold on. It's them. There's only me and Paul know we're here. I know we're here. Allow me. I'm a bit of a famous mimic in my own small way, you know. James Cagney. Hello there, this is the famous Ringo here, Gear Fab. What is it that I can do for you, as it were, Gear Fab? Not a bit like Cagney. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. We did it. We made it to the end of the year. That was season five of Cinema 60. I can't believe we've been doing this for that long, actually. <laughs> well, we've covered about 450 movies so far, averaging about 90 per season. And, uh... There's still thousands more 60s movies left to go, so 20 years from now, we'll still be going strong. Lots of great stuff to talk about. That's nice. I'm glad that we have things to to aspire to, you know, after 83 episodes. You know, and if you want to keep that, if you want that dream to be realized, how about, let me, let me, let me put it this way. Oh boy, self-promotion time. Yeah, but I didn't even get a chance to launch it. I was going to say, if you want to make our dreams come true, then you know what you can do for us is that you can go right ahead and subscribe, like, download. You know, you're already listening, so I feel like I don't have to tell you to listen. Share with friends. But you could also share, absolutely share this podcast. Do whatever you can to uh, promote it for free. <laughs> Uh, and that includes leaving us uh, nice reviews on Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify that you can leave star reviews, uh, anything, anything that you're listening to us on, please go ahead and, and leave us a nice review. I think the last time I asked for reviews, somebody left a, a bad review that called out me specifically and said that I have no sense of humor and I'm an evil bitch because like I didn't like some movie that they liked. If Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um you're wrong and uh you know if you're gonna be an asshole then you can leave your own look in a mirror and and tell tell yourself how much you don't like me and we'll call it even but it, you know if you do like us we can handle negative criticism you can even troll us if you feel better about yourself by spreading your bad vibes troll us but this time talk shit about bart jesus come on <laughs> Um, but the other thing you can possibly do if you're interested is that we have a Patreon and you can join our Patreon. Thankfully, we have a bunch of nice, lovely Patreon members who are fully funding Cinema 60, which is awesome. A lovely dream that we get to do this and not have to worry too much about uh, the, the amount it costs to keep up a website, which is a lot, unfortunately. Um, but we have a lot of wonderful, nice people that are donating to us. In return, we give them a mini podcast. We do something called Love-Ins, where Bart and I watch movies that are about the 60s, but were not made in the 60s, which has been kind of fun, if not strange. And then we sort of even expanded it into just movies 
that are related to the episodes that we've been watching. So like, you know, for our Soviet sci-fi episode that we did this season, we watched a 1980s Soviet sci-fi that we'd been really interested in and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's basically the same old thing. It's us talking about movies and it is uh, a lot of fun. We really, really appreciate all of our Patreons and, you know, you, we could appreciate you too if you were a Patreon, I'm just saying. And actually this month, Jenna had the idea to do something a little different for our Patreon mini episode. We're going to do a recap of our favorite and least favorite movies we covered on Cinema 60 this year. So sign up to hear that now. Exactly. And you know what? You can also hear all of the previous episodes of our Lovin's uh, if you join up. So that's like unlocking a whole world of extra podcast and they're short don't worry about it they're not like another two hour long podcast <laughs> we aim for 20 minutes per episode yeah we keep it short and sweet so anyhow just saying cinema 60 thank you guys for listening we really really appreciate it we really enjoy doing this and we also love hearing feedback um even if it's constructive constructive is great feedback of any sort would be fantastic we see the numbers. We know people are listening, but it's hard to know if we're doing the right things or the wrong things without you telling us. So more feedback, please. Yeah. And if you want Bootleg Bond to come back, you know, reach out. Tell us. We've kind of got that going on this episode. We do have a Bootleg Bond this episode, but our theme is uh, quite different. Our theme is bands playing themselves in the 1960s, which is, I think Bart's going to have to explain what that means. Well, in the wake of A Hard Day's Night, all the bands that the kids of the time loved, especially the British Invasion bands, uh, thought they could be the Beatles and achieve that kind of cult of personality. So they made movies like the Beatles did. Unfortunately, very few of them had the screen presence of the Beatles, so the phenomenon of bands having fictionalized adventures in movies was delightful, but uh, short-lived. Or maybe delightfully short-lived. And this is one of those episodes that I was so excited to do, I've been wanting to do for so long, and then you do it and you're like, man, these are not good movies. <laughs> I might argue that the monkeys were the only ones to really make much out of the formula, but that's a discussion for later in the episode. But all these movies are fun to watch. This is a fun episode. I will say that much. And, uh, you know, as we've said before, I think, you know, the, the main reason why both Bart and I really love 60s movies has to do with our love for 60s music. So it's just exciting to sort of see this other... You know, the, the kind of big names, There's no, there was nobody involved in any of this I had never heard of before, uh, you know. Except Freddie and the Dreamers. I knew the name. I just never listened to the, his music, their music. Uh, but, you know, either way, it was it was fun. And it's certainly like a, a great little cultural touchstone. This is like a great little history nugget, this episode. So let's jump right into our first movie, a movie I watched already for our 1964 episode, the 1964 musicals. Uh, so it must have come out in 64, but I, my source here has a 1965 date for the movie. Actually, it came out in December of 1964, Fairy Cross the Mercy. Look at me in your eyes, I can see. 
is Jerry and the Pacemakers and, you know, another Liverpool band. This was a, a blatant ripoff of Hard Day's Night, which had come out earlier that year. One of their more famous songs was titled Fairy Cross the Mercy. So uh, there you go. It's a two-bit ripoff of Hard Day's Night. And honestly, a little alarming because Brian Epstein actually produced this movie as well. <laughs> and you'd think he wouldn't want to so blatantly rip off his better property, but uh, so be it. I didn't think this was so bad, just pretty unexciting. Definitely not worth seeing twice, but I got through it a second time without any trouble. Definitely better than some of the other movies we watched for this episode. I'm looking at you, Herman's Hermits. But it's more of a story how the band came to be, so not really a Hard Day's Night ripoff. Well, this movie opens with a triumphant return from America and then getting mobbed by teens and running away from them. So. <laughs> well, not that there aren't some similarities. And then it flashes back to when before they were famous, where they're playing at the Cavern Club. And then we see uh, old Jerry Marsden as he catches the ferry across the Mercy River. And, and uh, that's where the rest of the band just happens to be waiting with like a full piano on the ferry. <laughs> Uh, we get in a little song there. Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, the rest of the movie is pretty pedestrian. We we see them go to art school. Uh, we see them hanging out with, like, a basset hound. There is uh, a bird named Dodie who's a friend of theirs and trying to get them gigs. There's a running theme in a lot of these movies where the lead singer's pretty blonde rich girlfriend is the one with the connections, and she's the only reason they get to play any shows. True. Uh, there is a highly questionable scene at a Chinese restaurant, which has about as many are we eating the dog jokes as you'd expect from a 60s movie. They uh, Eventually, they enter a band competition where um, everyone's favorite presenter whose memory and legacy definitely hasn't aged poorly, Jimmy Savile, <laughs> hosts a showcase of bands. And then this whole thing kind of like culminates in the Benny Hill-style police chase because the old pacemakers lose their instruments and they have to like rush around town to get them before it's their turn on the slot. And then they play and they win because there's some like, it's like whoever, you know, applauds the loudest and, and gosh, it was, it was Jerry and the pacemakers. They won. Luckily, Scylla Black was there to do an out of competition song to buy the boys some time to get back and win. Hopefully, uh, Jimmy Savile managed to keep his hands off her during the, the filming. But uh, And that Benny Hill, Keystone, Cops, undercranked, silent comedy bit, I, I guess that was just included to remind people of the section in uh, Hard Day's Night where Ringo goes off on his own and gets nabbed by the cops when he's just trying to mind his own business and take some pictures. <laughs> and uh, a sped-up wackiness is always a, a cheap and easy way to make audiences feel like they're having a good time. <laughs> Honestly, I'll tell you what the 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 worst part of the oh actually the best part of this movie is the beginning where they're talking about how tough Liverpool is and they're just showing clips of children like playing with fire in a pile of rubble. <laughs> it's actually it's actually amazing. It is like this really depressing footage of children in poverty and it's like 
you know, this, this how did how the the boys met story. It's like really ridiculous. Um, so actually, that made me legit laugh out loud. <laughs> like it's also a bunch of children like playing in a graveyard, and they're <laughs> anyhow. The opening of this movie is great, but my biggest complaint, besides the fact that it just feels incredibly dated, is the fact that uh, you barely get a glimpse of the boys. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't understand what the point of any band movie is if you, like, don't get clear shots of the band. I couldn't tell you the name of any pacemaker, and I've seen it twice. And that's just poor filmmaking, because one of the best things about A Hard Day's Night is that it's, you can so clearly see everyone's face. <laughs> they have their own, like, section. You get to know every band member. You know, like, it. They, there's really, like, a... a there's a female gaze in a hard day's night, uh, which is impressive for a movie made entirely by men. And there's absolutely none of that in this movie. Even when they're singing, you you really barely can see them. And it's not just because the quality of this movie that, you know, I don't think ever even got released out of theaters is terrible, <laughs> predictably. But uh, it's just the, it's just shot really blandly. It's just like kind of hard. I mean, you see Jimmy Savile better than you see anyone else in the movie. You get a few set pieces. There's a number set at the art school where Jerry goes uh, complete with a nude model. Uh, but, but don't worry, it's just implied nudity because uh, this movie's for the whole family. And you get another song that's set in a bathroom supply warehouse amongst uh, rows of bathtubs and toilets. <laughs> Like what? Like what are these choices? Like oh, kids these days—they love bathrooms, they love rubble, and they love—you uh, know—silent comedy. It's ridiculous. There's that required youth culture thing that involves some gentle poking fun at polite society and at the older generation. Anybody in a suit gets some kind of eye roll from the boys. I mean, at least, at least there's something for the kids there. Plus, how are you supposed to get a female gaze from a movie where the best you have to look at is Jerry Marsden? At least the Beatles were cute. <laughs> hey, man, look at all that. There was a cold crowd lusting after him. So I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Next, we've got the Dave Clark Five movie, Catch Us If You Can, or Having a Wild Weekend, as it was known in the U.S. 1965. Now we gotta run. Mm -hmm. No more time for fun. by John Borman, actually his debut feature film. As, uh, as a little unexpected surprise, we've actually got two debuts by major new Hollywood-type directors that we'll be discussing this episode. True. Here we have the band, all living together in an you know, open-concept-type space that kind of looks like a, a former church or something. Reminds me of uh, where the monkeys lived on their TV show, so... Clearly, the inspiration for the Monkees was all of these early bands playing themselves movies, not just the Beatles ones. Uh, however, the Dave Clark Five are not a band here, even though they're using their own names, you know, except for Dave Clark himself, who's uh, going by Steve for some reason. They're stuntmen slash stand-ins or extras or something who are currently working on an ad for meat. Dave is dating the spokesgirl for the ad, 
Dinah, played by Barbara Ferris, and her face is all over billboards everywhere selling meat. Meat for go. Meat for go. That's what all the posters with her face on them say. What, what, whatever that's supposed to mean. And God knows what that means. The only thing I can think of is there was a there was a British advertising campaign in the 60s called Go to Work on an Egg, which was like, eat eggs for breakfast and you'll be like fueled for the rest of the day. And I feel like that's what they're ripping off. But I like meat for go is, is you know, anyhow. I guess it's not that different from the Got Milk campaign of the 80s and 90s. I mean, got got milk. At least you understand what where what's happening. <laughs> so he convinces Dinah, who's also a bit fed up with this phony advertising business, to jump in the fancy sports car that he's driving for the ad and take off on an adventure, leaving uh, the the film crew and, and and the rest of the Dave Clark Five in the dust. The Steve Clark Five. They drive around London in a. Uh, a shagadelic swinging 60s montage with all the shops and landmarks whizzing behind them as the the Dave Clark Five's latest hits play on the soundtrack. They stop off at a public pool and go scuba diving, even though it's the middle of winter. Uh, they decide to head to the coast to take a look at this abandoned resort island that Dinah is thinking about buying to get away from it all, and end up stopping in this abandoned town and they hang out with a, around a fire with a whole bunch of squatters, you know, d- dirty hippie types who serve, uh, I guess, as an example of uh, the extreme, like, dropping out of this plasticized capitalistic society. I guess uh, they're there to represent, I mean, I, mean, I guess these, these hippies are meant as sort of a negative example of what happens to young people who reject society at large. And we're meant to think like Steve and Dinah are not like these youths. They're uh, Steve and Dinah are the good kind of rebels with consciences who are just, you know, a little lost by their uh, dissatisfactions with modern life, but not rejecting it outright. But uh, this abandoned town turns out to be a place for the army to run drills. So they start getting bombed and stuff and they uh, have to run for their lives. Their fancy car gets blown up or whatever. And uh, and so they end up hitchhiking and get picked up by this weird, rich, middle-aged couple who take them back to their house and bath and, you know, try to get it on with, uh, with our young, attractive couple, uh, try and get them out of their clothes and into the shower uh i i I mean it's not clear what they're up to exactly but there's definitely hints that they're uh they've got some kinky sex games in mind uh these these rich people and uh want to want to do something uh unsavory with uh with steve and dinah uh the so the wife gets steve on his own and uh the husband helps Dinah take a shower, um, but uh, you know, once once they're each they're, they have them on their own, they really just want to chat them up and talk about their hobbies. It's like they're trying to connect and prove they can relate to the young and hip, uh, you know, youth quake that's going on. But uh, at, at the same time, Dinah's publicist is. Uh, 
pissed off about Dinah taking off, but then realizes, oh, wait, this this is a great story. And uh, that, that it's great for Dinah's image and the ad campaign. So they uh, they want to follow her and Steve and and, uh, and keep the ball rolling on this publicity stunt. Um, so they, uh, Steve calls the rest of the boys, the, the Steve Clark five who, you know, as par for the course with these movies, they're, they have no distinguishable personalities of their own. And, uh, for the most part, don't really have anything to do. Um, and, uh, he, he's asked them to come and get them. And, uh, but, uh, by the time the boys get there, the publicists have tracked them down and they all end up at a costume party that the middle-aged couple has invited him to, and uh, they try to lose the press by being disguised. And uh, so, you know, a lot of 60s-type wackiness happens. A whole bunch of people end up fully clothed in the pool, as you might expect. Don't they jump into... They jump into the Roman baths and bath. Yeah, something like that. Which is which is like... I When I was living in the UK as, as a college student... Uh, someone I know did that, <laughs> which there's massive signs about how you cannot do that. And this was like before going viral was like really a thing because it, w- it went up on YouTube. There's a video of this guy doing it like way, way back in the day. But um, everyone was telling him he was going to get brain amoebas, basically, because it's like all this green, murky, hot water that's just sit- sitting there still, you know, and so like. I was sort of amazed to see them all jumping in in the 60s. I was like, how does that work? Are they all dead? Anyway, it all results in a big chase where Steve and Dinah head in one direction and the rest of the band head in another uh, to lead the press you know, off their trail. There's a bucolic interlude where Steve and Dinah end up at the farm of some old camp counselor of Steve's or something who doesn't really remember Steve and they... They eventually get to the resort island that uh, the Dinah wants to buy, which is only an island when the tide is high and there's this motorized bridge on wheels, like, you know, with tank treads that takes you from to and from the island. It's a weird looking thing. Never seen anything like it. Anyway, turns out Dinah's agent is already there. Uh, I guess, well, I guess I'm going to spoil the movie a bit or completely. Because really what makes it interesting is the, the sort of the bleak tone of the whole thing and the, and the, uh, the kind of ending that you'd never expect from a fluffy Hard Day's Night ripoff. Uh, it, you know, it kind of turns into a, you know, an Antonioni movie or something, or, or maybe more like Fellini because there's this media circus waiting for Steve and Dinah outside the resort. And Steve is disgusted by it all and assumes Dinah will follow him to get away from it all. I'll get away from all this phony nonsense. But uh, her agent has convinced her, uh, oh, okay, you've had your fun. Let's let's get back to your job of being famous. And, and she's like, okay, Steve, are you, are you coming? And, uh, you know, let's, let, let's, let's get back to our regular lives. This was fun and all, but we're done. And, uh, but Steve just, takes off says see you Dinah and uh <laughs> that's the end I thought this was a really cool movie takes its uh, subject matter far more seriously than uh, than I ever would have expected what do you think 
Yeah, I mean, I was impressed with this. Uh, it's it's definitely it's stylish. It it feels decently counterculture for what it is. You know, like it's never entirely subverting the fact that it is itself this kind of cash and vehicle. You know, like but but there there is a commentary here, and like you said, it really it actually reminded me quite a bit of La Dolce Vita, but you know, kind of a, an extremely light version. Um, and there's the, you know this like hints of poignancy that. I would say they land about as well as they do in Zardoz, but they're there. <laughs> yeah, Borman really does take an opportunity to put his mark on this slight material. He doesn't. He doesn't take the easy route anyway. He he throws in a lot of pizzazz. Yeah, I think. I mean, I really think this is like it's a good. It's a good example of how to use your like how to cash in your pop culture cred for, um, you know shoving in a couple of interesting messages even subliminally you know it's like you come for the the crazy partying and then suddenly there is like a 20 minute interlude about an older married couple that collects antiques <laughs> uh but it was it was interesting it was fun i i don't know i mean in comparison to say like a hard day's night it's not nearly as funny it's certainly a much more it's it's more serious. It has funny moments, but it definitely is like takes itself way seriously. But at the same time, it does spend a lot of time showing us wild parties and a lot of 60s silliness that it seemed like Borman was, you know, like obligated to include because producers assume that's what their, you know, target demographic wanted. But there's there's a lot of impressive stuff on top of the like goofy chases and shit. What I mean, I'm I'm sort of fascinated that this is a John Borman movie in that it feels does it feel like a John Borman movie? Is there does do his movies feel like something? I feel like they do by the 70s, by the even the end of the 60s. I mean, Point Blank is such a stylish, amazing movie. Yeah, I mean, Borman is definitely a stylist more than somebody with a particular set of subjects or ideas that he returns to, I think. But what his style is other than keeping things visually interesting. I'm not real sure. This is a black and white movie, by the way. I think Borman's only one, not in color. The music's good too. Like, like solidly, like some of these, I mean, all of these have pretty good music, uh, but this one, at least all, all the Dave Clark five songs are fun. So our next film is help. Nineteen sixty five, directed by Richard Lester. If you haven't seen Help, uh, I cannot help you. This is a classic 1960s movie. And uh, I, again, anyone who's like, oh, I don't get the Beatles. They're overrated. You're overrated. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Beatles are a pretty good band. Yeah. <laughs> That's a controversial stance that we're taking here on Cinema 60. Um, but Help. Help is technically a bootleg Bond movie, Bart. Yeah, it's true, but it's the silliest spoof of a bootleg Bond movie you could ever make. 
I honestly wonder if the reason why I can tolerate bootleg Bond movies is because I enjoy help. Might be a cause and effect situation. Um, the plot of help. Again, this is the Beatles little known band. Um, the plot here, actually there is a plot as opposed to hard days night, which is just sort of a, I mean, there's a plot there too, but not really like this is a, sit down, real plot, plot kind of a movie. There is an Indian cult played entirely by white people in brown face that is about to sacrifice a lady to their god, Kali, when they realize that this lady is missing the sacrificial ring. And of course, the ring shows up on Ringo. So they that's that was my bad accent. So uh, the whole movie is about them trying to steal it back in increasingly cartoonish and comical ways while the boys hang out and make stoned observations <laughs> and sing songs and they go to the Alps and they go to Stonehenge and they go to the Bahamas and uh, that's it. Great, great film. <laughs> and then there are these two scientists who Ringo goes to for help All right. uh, to remove the ring but they but they can't do that and but they so then they want to steal the ring for themselves because of its like crazy magical properties and they have big plans for the ring and the main evil scientist is victor spinetti who shows up in all these beetle things he's back and his assistant is my boy roy kinnear and uh starring also eleanor braun who's your lady the best part of Dazzled and two for the road, and we share a birthday. She's great. <laughs> she's like the uh, the high priestess of the Kali cult, but she's secretly helping the Beatles because well, I guess she thinks they're cute or something. Especially Paul, who she keeps making moony eyes at. I mean, she's definitely exoticized or orientalized or whatever, and, and doing an accent, but not so grotesquely as the uh, the other cult members. Not sure why I give this movie a pass for this stuff, other than it's the Beatles. And, uh, you know, I guess I tell myself it's making fun of the uh, sort of Asian villain stereotypes and like Dr. No and stuff. But, you know, there's really no good excuse for any of it. I mean, this movie's completely ridiculous. And the first time that I saw it uh, as a kid, I thought it was pretty stupid. <laughs> oh, it's stupid for sure. In the best way. I mean, like, I think about help all the time. I think Bart and I have already waxed poetically about how we want the help house. It's exactly, it's what you think bands should be like. You know what I mean? Like, it basically is really, it's buying into this idea that all of them are really clear. Not only are they in a band together and they make great music together, but they all like, actually live together and they spend every waking moment together and they're all really good friends and everything they say is quippy and funny and cool and they all dress really well and they have themed colors and themed bedrooms and you know it's just like it, it's it's such a fantasy come true of both like what everything a teenager's ever wanted and everything you as an adult still have a nostalgia for wanting just you. Just me. <laughs> I always wanted John's sunken couch bed thing. It's perfect. There, Ringo has an automat in his room. George has got a lawnskeeper that 
keeps the artificial turf in front of his bed trim with wind-up chattering teeth. Brilliant. It's just, it's just brilliant. I mean, there's actually, there, there is, there's so much, you know, I know that the Beatles, they're basically all of their memories of making this movie was, were being incredibly stoned. I don't think any of them really gave a shit about this film, uh, especially after a hard day's night. Um, but that's also totally the charm of it. Like watching it, the fact that they're all sort of phoning it in so clearly, it makes it even better somehow. I mean, like there are some legitimately really funny, well-made moments in this movie, and then there's some really cheeseball corn, corny corn stuff. I love the part where Eleanor Braun has a hypodermic that's supposed to shrink Ringo's finger to get the ring off, but the cult attacks and Paula ends up getting jabbed with it and then shrinking down to like incredible shrinking man size. <laughs> he shrinks out of his clothes so he's naked and uh, taking a bath in an ashtray. The exciting adventures of Paul on the floor. Not that you get to see any of his bits. But oh, <laughs> oh, the anticipation. Uh, yeah, I mean, like all of those, all of those little weird, the weirder that this movie gets, the funnier it is. I love like that, that stupid one-off thing where it's like everyone laughs at Ringo's sudden apprehension. And then it's just like John standing there going like, ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. Like, <laughs> and that's it. It's like this totally like deadpan, like, you know that someone wrote this down and had an idea of what this joke could be in a like composed funny way. And the fact that everyone's just hardcore phoning it in makes it even funnier. A lot of the movie is just unscripted mugging for the camera while lip syncing to ticket to ride in the Swiss Alps and stuff like that. They just goof around in the snow. And they do. What not. They do. They also spend a lot of time, all four of them on one sled together laughing like idiots. <laughs> Which from can you imagine them doing that from an insurance standpoint nowadays? <laughs> I don't know if I've been too involved in production, but it's like, you know, to have all of them, all four of them skiing, actually skiing down a mountain and then doing these sort of like dangerous, dopey stunts where it's like nobody broke something. Amazing. Aren't there insurance policies for that? Tom Cruise does his own stunts. I mean... Good question, but this is like, this is even, you know, Tom Cruise has wires. <laughs> and I will say that this movie also it ends with a uh, very, like, you know, surreal dedication to Elias Howe, who invented the sewing machine and is buried in Brooklyn. Nice little fact for you. He's buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. I for sure am a bigger fan of Hard Day's Night than I am this movie. It's just so much more clever and... Yes. Uh, important it's iconic but i've seen help so many times that it's like in my bloodstream and it's one of my father's favorite movies and he quotes nonsensical lines from it all the time like he's talking to you up up in the uh, in the scientist lab or when george sees the smoking curling ball stone thing that's really a bomb and says look out it's a fiendish thingy <laughs> you know it's like an essential part of my life, this movie. There are, there are definitely certain movies that I have a hard time even looking at objectively because I just, I can't. <laughs> and that this is one of them. It's like, this is such a dumb movie. And yet it, it, I love the Beatles so much. And I love the set design of that house so much that I can forgive everything else. <laughs>
But it, it is genuinely funny. Like, I, I have to say, like, of all of the movies that we watch, this is the one that actually makes me laugh out loud in a genuine way and not like a scoffing kind of way. It's definitely the funniest of all the movies we watch for this episode. Or I guess the Monkeys movie comes close for me, but in a in a different way. That one was funny, too, but I think help makes me help is more of my sense of humor. But we're going to talk about the Monkeys movie. But now we're going to talk about the absolute worst of all the movies we watched for this episode. Hold on, 1966. First Herman's Hermits movie, directed by Arthur Lubin, you know, an old-timey Hollywood studio director, famous for like Abbott and Costello movies and Francis the Talking Mule, uh, you know, forties comedies like that. Uh, you know, exactly the director you want to get to connect to sixties kids who love floppy-haired British invasion bands. Uh, well, what we've got here is. Uh, Hey, let's do a hard day's night with Herman's Hermits, but in America with the blandest 60s sitcom sensibility imaginable. There's not a hint of anything fun or imaginative in here. I mean, the, the premise itself sounds pretty wacky. NASA asks the kids of America to name the new rocket that the U.S. is shooting into space, and, uh, and they all vote for Herman's Hermits. Uh, and uh, NASA doesn't like naming the rocket after a British band, but they figure, you know, they should at least check out these guys, the band, to see what they're all about. So they send uh, this this suit, this, uh, you know, scientist guy in a suit, to try and get on the inside tracks and spy on uh, Herman's Hermits. So uh, here they come. Here the band comes landing in America and getting all the fan frenzy that we're hoping to see from a movie like this. Uh, so at least they're playing themselves, and they're actually a band. Well, except the singer's name is Herman, not uh, not Peter Noon, which is his actual name. Now a serious XM radio jockey. Yeah, lovely fellow, 60s music's ambassador to the world now. Um and he, again, he's the only member of the band of any importance. The other guys in the in the band are always hanging around nearby, and we probably hear most of their names, but they don't matter at all. The the movie is banking on Peter Noon's movie star charisma. He's not terrible, but there's no real personality there that I can discern. Anyway, with all this weird setup with NASA and their spy and. You know, no, nothing much comes of it. And, and there's this other side plot involving a, a starlet who wants to boost her career um, by pretending to know Herman's Hermits. So she keeps, like, trying to get in photographs and stuff with them. Uh, and then she and the NASA scientists, like, sort of get together because each one thinks that the other knows the band better than they do. And there's, you know... A lot of misunderstandings that don't amount to much of anything, especially not laughs. Um, the main plot, I guess, is how the hermits have to stay locked in their hotel room. You, you know, get it? Hermits. 
uh, because some guy says they'll cause too much havoc because uh, they're so famous if they, if they go out and hobnob with the masses. I think it's by their manager. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Hard Day's Night set the precedent that the band's manager is just there to be ignored and thwarted, and uh, <laughs> all these movies follow that pattern. I, I guess it makes sense. Uh, kids want one thing more than anything, and it's not to be told what to do by somebody in a suit. Uh, and, you know, these managers are all guys in suits. But the uh, the Herman spies this cute young thing singing a song with her friends on the beach outside his window and, uh, you know, instantly falls in love. And But since he can't go out and meet her, he has, uh, you know, the corniest fantasy imaginable about him dressed as a knight and she's a princess and the manager is like a sea monster or something and he has to save her from the manager, you know, whatever. It's all strictly sub, sub Frankie and Annette beach party type stuff. Um, turns out the girl, Louisa, played by uh, Shelley Fabares, is part of some fundraising committee with her mom and gets to meet Herman in his room. And then they plan an escape where they all can go to the fair. Uh, and there's an astronaut-themed fantasy number. And uh, the movie eventually ends. <laughs> I didn't hate this movie as much as you did, but it is not good. What's there to like about it? Name one thing. <laughs> Honestly, the 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 best part about this is um, the there's a scene where Herman they're they're on a a roller coaster and Herman falls off the roller coaster and then there's this like horrendous green screen roller coaster scene <laughs> that is just. It would not confuse a a dog, you know what I mean? Like it's it's so clearly fake. It can't even get the first person sensation of riding on a roller coaster right, which is the whole right. point of a scene like this. It, it's it's really uh, it's rough. <laughs> but I actually thought I thought that Peter Noon got some charm across. But the thing that really weirded me out, it was a bit like the first movie was where was the rest of the band, as you mentioned? And also like, man, they have no chemistry together. The Hermits and Herman. And I mean, in the script's terrible. I, I you know, I don't want to fully blame old Herman's Hermits, who I, as a band, I don't hate. <laughs> None of the music in this movie was particularly fantastic. And, and the sort of fantasy singing scenes were pretty cornball. I don't know. It was just, it just felt like, it felt like a really poor excuse for a movie that did, did not understand its audience whatsoever. Well, the less said about this one, the better, especially since we get to come back to Herman's Hermits a little bit later. Uh, but before we move on to the next film, I just wanted to briefly mention a couple of contenders for this episode that I ended up watching, but uh, they didn't make the cut for one reason or another. The first is The Ghost Goes Gear, 1966, the Spencer Davis Group movie. I uh, insisted that we cut it because it's barely even a movie. The, the Spencer Davis Group winds up at their manager's uh, ancestral mansion where there's a, a singing ghost. They're really, really low production values, no real story. And the second half of it is just, it turns into a bunch of bands you know, a bunch of different bands, including the Spencer Davis group, 
performing a couple of songs each uh, for some kind of benefit. Uh, the show's at the mansion, you know, out in there in the garden. It uh, it really just felt like a 70s TV variety show sort of thing, like uh, the Bee Gees Cucumber Castle TV special, maybe. I uh, I guess the Ghost Goes Gear played theatrically in the UK, but it's not not worth our time that that's that that's all that's all we're gonna say about that one um the other film i watched was los chicos con las chicas uh the boys with the girls the uh, los bravos movie from spain 1967 i wanted to see what a film like this from outside the uk or us would be like and uh it's basically just the same thing and uh los bravos had uh, you know at least one us hit Black is Black, uh, which kind of rode on the British invasion wave. So it, it kind of fit with the theme. But uh, but no subtitles were available for this movie. And the auto-translate captions from YouTube were disastrous. Uh, you know, not that it was hard to figure out what was going on. Uh, the lead singer, Mike, falls for a girl at an all-girls school and poses as a music teacher to be near her. It, it's not any worse than any of the other things we watched they're actually uh, some cool animated, like, sort of rotoscoped, drawn-over film sequences that were uh, pretty cool-looking, but not, uh, you know, the whole thing wasn't distinctive enough to suffer through uh, the the subtitling problems. So, uh, so I decided we should just skip it. Uh, Los Bravos actually had a second film in 1968 called Dam un poco de amor. That's, uh, it's supposed to be like an you know, campy Adam West Batman sort of bootleg Bond thing that uh, supposed to, actually supposed to be really kind of entertaining and fun and, and not like the other movies that we watched here. But uh, I couldn't even find an unsubtitled copy. So, yeah, that that's that's everybody's loss there. Um, anyway, I'll uh, Jen, I'll let you get on with introducing your favorite movie of the evening. Yeah, you know, I I I guarantee that I would have liked the Ghost Goes Gear more than I liked Cuckoo Patrol. Never daunted, never wrong. We do good deeds all day long. We'll do your job for a bob. And we're the friendliest mob. Always ready, always fit. We're prepared to do our bit. We are the Cuckoo from 1967. I mean, for one, I actually like the Spencer Davis group versus Freddie and the Dreamers, who is the star of the Cuckoo Patrol. This is directed by Duncan Wood, who I think actually did, did some Tony Hancock movies, which uh, might put something in perspective for you. <laughs> or not movies, his, his radio hour, TV hour, I think. But... um. Anyhow, Freddie and the Dreamers, I that's a name I have heard. I don't know any of their music. I don't know anything about them. They had a handful of uh hits in the 60s. They, you know, were in the top 10 of the UK hits uh while they were around. They're from Manchester. Judging by their music and their whole vibe, I'm presuming their audience was 13 years old, but I genuinely have no idea. This is another movie where the band isn't actually playing themselves, but their build is playing themselves. So I guess they're playing themselves. I don't, you know, somebody please, please tell me what the deal is. 
I guess Freddie was a real goofball on stage too. His hamminess was was all part of their thing. I kind of get the sense, judging by their music, that that's kind of their vibe. Anyhow, that's what's uh... so Freddie and his buds. They're in the Boy Scouts, and boy, are they terrible at it. The uh, other kids don't like them because they're weird, and the adults don't like them because they're incompetent. And wouldn't you just know it, they're miserable to watch. Like, I <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Um, so we basically watch as they drift through life and react to various stimuli. <laughs> At one point, they get stuck in a truck, like the back of a truck. They cannot figure out how to escape. Uh, at one point, they meet some girl campers. Uh, at one point, they end up as professional wrestlers by mistake. Uh, at one point, they sing with the girl campers, the Girl Scouts. And uh, it's all pretty basic. And I would say the most amusing part of this movie is the end, the last like 20 minutes or so, where they end up uh, entangled with a bunch of gangsters and it's incredibly stupid, but I thought was the only thing that, that even bordered on comedy. Not, not, not that it was good comedy, but like it was at least amusing. It was like recognizably comedy, whereas the whole rest of this film made me want to die. This wasn't anything special, but I didn't have any trouble getting through it. Like, uh, you know, it felt like a part of an old time British comedy tradition, like the Doctor at Large movies or Carry On or something. Pretty unambitious, but fine. And, uh, you know, unlike Hold On, it uh, or, or it wasn't even trying. And it was such a chore to watch. That's how I felt about this one. That's how I felt about this one. I didn't know if I was going to make it through. Uh, my kryptonite is, in fact, grown men acting like stupid children. It's not funny. It's not cute. It's obnoxious. I hate... I hate anything where like th this movie presumes you as an audience is is an idiot and 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 I can tell. You know what I mean? And maybe if I knew more about old Freddy and the Dreamers, I would have more goodwill towards them. Like if someone can confirm that their audience was primarily 12-year-old girls, then like sure, I get it. <laughs> but I thought this was insufferably unwatchable. I thought this was pure Misery. At least Freddy and the Dreamers have a comic shtick they're doing, unlike Herman's Hermits and four of the Dave Clark Five who do nothing. Not sure why you don't give them credit for that. Because I cannot deal with grown men acting like stupid children. The only time it worked was with the gangsters, because like at least with that, they like these gangsters have an ulterior motive and they're like leading them along, and there was like a better setup for them being clueless. And then their cluelessness was causing pain to the gangsters. And like, that's just a classic cartoon trope, you know, like, or them just even like stupid stuff, like they're throwing around a bag of dynamite and they don't realize there's dynamite in it. You know, like that. It's like literally like Bugs Bunny levels. I mean, Bugs Bunny is a lot funnier, but, <laughs> you know, or even like there, there's a, there's a dumb line in the end where it was the, the one of the guys one of the dreamers, I think, where he's talking about, there's always someone left to do the umping. Ump, ump, ump. There's always blokes like us doing the umping. That was amusing. <laughs> I do think this movie got released a year or two after it was made. 
didn't come out till after their brief fame had had faded a bit. Because this would have killed their popularity. This is truly, this is a career ender of a movie. I mean, it ends with their scoutmaster like basically committing suicide. Like he just like holds up a knife and disappears off frame. I'm not going to say the Cuckoo Patrol was an essential stop on our journey for this episode, but uh, I did think it had authentic British flavor and was the most like a traditional film of anything we watched and uh, less just a, you know, star or group vehicle. Um, anyway, next we've got Good Times. The Sonny and Cher movie directed by William Friedkin, of all people. This is the other feature debut from a major director that we get to talk about tonight. But uh, I I defy anybody to find any stylistic trademarks here that might carry over to The Exorcist or Cruising. Um, and So not only do we have a bootleg Bond film this episode, but we... Uh, We've also got one here with this movie that could have worked for our Faust episode. Oh, yeah. So Sonny and Cher are a married couple named Sonny and Cher, and they live in L.A. and have recorded some hit singles, just like the real Sonny and Cher. Uh, Sonny brings up that he wants to meet with the Hollywood producer who wants to make a movie with them, and Cher is all like, nah, I'm good. She's content with her life, singing songs and designing clothes and has no interest in getting involved in movie stuff. But Sonny says he's going to go just to see what it's all about. So he meets with Mr. Mordecus, the Mephistopheles character in the film, played by George Sanders, doing his uh, his haughty, slithery George Sanders thing. He tells Sonny he's got a great script tailored just to the two of them, to Sonny and Cher. Um, so just sign the dotted line. But Sonny says... Uh, I'll sign, but only if only if I can choose a story and write the script. Mordecai says, sure, you've got a week. So most of the rest of the movie is Sonny imagining different movie scenarios starring himself and Cher to try and come up with the perfect idea for the for the movie, um, for for the script. The first idea is this Western thing with Sonny playing the uh, old Western town's brave, but... Uh, but non-violent sheriff and uh, Cher is a singer in the saloon. You get to see her do a whole number on stage. And uh, and then in comes the villain uh, of the story, played by George Sanders. Knife McBlade. Right. Mordecus plays the antagonist in, uh, in every one of Sonny's imagined scenarios because uh, he is the devil, the man in the suit with the money that all 60s youths see is everything they never want to be uh, and the person they never want to listen to. So, uh, yeah, so next, Sonny imagines him and Cher in a jungle adventure movie. They live in this, you know, decked out 60s style house, but uh, Sonny is like Tarzan, so the house is up in a tree. Sonny goes and, you know, fights 
colonialist bad guys. The head one played by George Sanders, of course. And Cher is a bored, stay-at-home housewife. Uh, Mickey from the Monkees shows up playing a, a jungle hero on the TV show Sonny's watching at the beginning of the sketch. Uh, so there's that. Um, and the last scenario is uh, as a private eye type movie, noir thing, where Sonny plays a hard-boiled detective like uh, Philip Marlowe, sort of a, a Humphrey Bogart type. No, he, you know who he is? He's Johnny Pizzicato, which has to be Johnny Staccato. Which is John Cassavetti's TV show from the 50s that I'm totally obsessed with. I know what it is, but I've never seen it. <laughs> it kind of rules. It's on YouTube. Well, long story short, Sonny can't come up with a decent story idea. And the one that the studio has written for them has them playing like poor hillbillies who are going to lose their land to the government. But uh, they make this surprise hit record and you know the dj some dj finds it and plays it and it becomes a big hit and uh and they make good and and uh end of movie but sonny and Cher agree that no that's a terrible idea and they refuse to sell themselves out by doing that story i mean i'm not sure why this idea for a movie is any more of a you know misrepresentation of who they are than sonny's dumb ideas are i mean i guess it's sappy and sentimental and fake but it's supposed to be really obvious to the audience that doing the story would make Sonny and Cher total sellouts and I'm not sure <laughs> it really is significantly different than the other ideas that Sonny has but anyway uh movie goes on from there Sonny rides his motorcycle around Cher sings by a fountain and we worry about how they'll get out of their deal with the devil you know, maybe that's the uh, the exorcist connection I was looking for. The Friedkin touch. Your boy, Billy. My boy? <laughs> Old Billy? R.I.P. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was surprisingly okay, but um, it's it's super corny. I mean, I've never really... Sonny and Cher was, is definitely not my speed. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that, like, most of this movie is Sonny, who I've never fully understood and like i don't think he's that good of a singer i don't think he's very charming i don't get him whatsoever but Cher is so amazing in this. <laughs> besides the fact that she's just lounging in like the most outrageous outfits in in the most wild shag rug carpet on the walls kind of a house and then the fact that all of her lines are just these really deadpan like zingers like she is just totally on fire she's so charming and she's so cute and i just loved her i loved her in this and that was the most exciting part because none of these skits were really that fun like they had amusing moments like you know i like when they're in the western world and like you can see like a no parking sign or something there you know it's like these little hints of the fact that this isn't a real world or um that weird ass music video where Cher's dressed like a clown <laughs> And hanging off of Carousel, um, there's Sonny Russell's an actual baby lion, which looks a little bit painful, quite frankly, for both him and the baby lion. And uh, but the Johnny Pizzicato, the private eye thing, actually did make me laugh, and mostly because the part of the joke is that this guy is just such a humorless jerk. And so there's a really this is totally my sense of humor is that he's trying to walk into a restaurant and the doorman says. Oh, Johnny Pizzicato, lovely to see you today. And he just like punches him right in the stomach. 
like <laughs> it's, it's really cruel this poor poor guy you know it's like because this i'm a private eye i'm a hard-boiled detective kind of kind of a joke uh so yeah whenever whenever sonny's punching men and women who say nice things to him then i get it then he's then he's great but <laughs> i mean i guess sonny wrote all the songs and controlled all the the duo's musical choices and and share is just the voice and the legs uh, and the personality and uh, and really the only thing the movie should be focusing on. But Sonny has too much of an ego not to put himself at the center. Right. Plus, he just seems too old to be the mouthpiece for youthful rebellion that we're meant to think he is, I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the probably the disappointing except not surprising aspect of this movie is that it's just very square. <laughs> It really is like there's really nothing there's there's a handful of decent jokes and I just feel like the only the only reason why Cher even stands out so much is the fact that she's just such an interesting presence and if she had been like all of the other little blonde girlies in in all of these other movies then uh you know this really would have been a slog but because of the fact that she's just an interesting person with an interesting voice and and a good singer then you know she is kind of she's just the bright spot it's not hard to watch, and it's not like anybody would be going into this with very high expectations. So I'd say, sure, worth watching if you got nothing better to do. I would say seek it out just because uh, it's a good. It'll be a good party trick to to bring out next time somebody talks about Friedkin. <laughs> and if you're a Cher fan at all, it's worth watching for her. She's so cute. She's got great fashions. We're supposed to believe she designed everything she's wearing we see her with her you know notebook and colored pencils drawing dresses and things all the time and it, those look like she was actually drawing and she draws really cool stuff and that was nice nice to know i tried looking up her art but you can't google share artwork and not get a bunch of fan art so if someone has a nice collection of her actual artwork if, if it is indeed hers, i think it is but anyhow, the next movie. Oh, my God. Here we are back with Herman's Hermits and Mrs. Brown. You've got a lovely daughter. Don't say she's broke my heart. I go down on my knees, but it's no good to find. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Which is from 1968, directed by Saul Swimmer. An American, even though this one has a real kitchen sink British feel to it. Who uh, went on to direct concert for Bangladesh for George Harrison. That's all he's got. Um, Herman's Hermits are back. Technically not playing themselves this time. But they are a bunch of guys in a band singing Herman's Hermit songs, so I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. Peter Noon is Herman. This movie opens with what I would say everybody presumes a Herman's Hermit's musical movie would open with, which is dog racing, because that's right. Mrs. Brown is a greyhound, and this entire movie is about betting on dog racing. <laughs> So just to be super clear, the dog racing is full time. 
They're just playing a band to kick up enough money so that they can pay the entry fees for the dog races. Being in a rock and roll band is fine, but what the kids really get excited for these days is dog racing. The dog racing is everything. <laughs> so we follow Mrs. Brown and her owner, Herman. I gotta say, actually, you know, there's a really delightful scene right at the beginning where we watch old Herman in his crummy Manchester row house as he puts on this like hot pink silk shirt and he heads out to work <laughs> for a hard day on the betting track. Uh, so ni nice portrait of swinging working class 60s Manchester here. Uh, anyhow, um, this dog racing stuff goes pretty much how all your normal dog racing 60s rock band movies go. And there is a bit of a love triangle with a young model and old Peter Noon. Actually, I think there's two girls in this movie, but I'm going to be real with you. I could not tell them apart. They're both blonde and 60s looking. I think one's the girl next door and one is a full on model. Tulip is the girl next door and she's nice and has a personality and stuff. Yes. Judy is just some boring rich model from London. Um, and then, of course, the dog gets lost and everyone panics. And gosh, can you believe it? When that dog shows up, guess what it has? A puppy. Cue the music. This movie sucked. <laughs> it's not good, but it's a hell of a lot better than Hold On. Maybe it's just the uh, you know authentic location photography. But uh, there's kind of a hint of realism to it, at least compared to that other studio-bound monstrosity. Uh, plus, there's a hobo who plays spoons that keeps showing up out of nowhere. Oh, right. A homeless man gets picked up as a invited house guest who just lingers for the entire film. And I have no idea why. I mean, and, and he's kind of a weirdo. And there is a scene where, you know, the, the girl next door who's trying to has a crush on, on Herman and her mother says to her, if you want him to or her, his aunt, whoever that some older woman tells her, if you want him to notice you, then you have to darn his socks and iron his shirts. And so she like goes and starts darning any old socks she finds. It turns out to be this homeless dude who like once she realizes that he's just like hanging out in the house, she starts screaming. <laughs> it's just really, really strange. I don't know what most of the decisions in this movie are about. There's some cool outfits. There's some cool velvet jackets. Like it actually looked kind of like fun, this movie visually, just because there's a lot of like fun pop colors in sort of bland areas. Well, swinging London fashions are in full effect in this movie, but uh, despite fully embracing the aesthetic in several scenes, there's a, a real us versus them sort of sentiment in these in this film. Like these northern lads, the hermits, are the real deal, but these fancy London scenesters are just ridiculous phonies. You get this one scene with Herman at a hipster London party with his model girlfriend, and there are all these celebrity lookalikes there there's like a, a john lennon somebody looks like mick jagger there's this uh photographer guy who's clearly supposed to be david bailey who's shooting a spread with judy for teenage bride magazine by the way herman catches him feeding his dog mrs brown some table scraps at the party so herman gets to you know push him to the floor and we're supposed to cheer because this photographer guy is a is a lout and a, and a phony. 
Somebody shouts, it's a happening! Because this famous guy is on the floor asking for a drink and somebody spills champagne on him. The thing that annoyed me the most about this movie, and I agree with you, it's definitely better than Hold On. It's more watchable. It has its sort of bafflingly amusing moments. But the thing that really annoyed me is at the beginning of this movie, it opens with Herman getting fired from some advertising job that he was, you know, wanting so that he could also pay for his dog racing. And so there's this whole like shoved in like commentary. Cause it's like, you know, the advertising executive sitting there saying all people are idiots, but it's in a movie that's clearly catering to like the, the lowest common denominator. <laughs> so it's just very like you're, you're talking about me while making it sound like you're on my side. And I just really resent how much, how patronizing this movie is. We're not supposed to like that ad executive because he's a guy in a suit and Herman has to wear a suit to work here. And rebellious youths hate that. They don't want Herman to be working for the man. But, you know, I just, there's a fine line because like when there's actually some legit rebelling, even if it's as simple as the Beatles giving a really dry line reading, it just feels a little more real than when it's essentially telling you like everyone's an idiot and that if you sell it well enough they'll buy it and that's all that matters please now now please enjoy mrs brown you've got a lovely daughter <laughs> you know it's just it's i don't know whatever i get it you think i'm an asshole i don't think you're an asshole no the movie but you know i don't think i'm not blaming herman i think peter noon is innocent nobody involved here is innocent they're all guilty of trying to separate young people from their money in exchange for some really bland entertainment. Alas. I don't hate Herman's Hermits, actually. I they, they you know, they had a they're they're amusing. <laughs> well they're sure not the monkeys. And I love the monkeys. I'm not a, a ashamed to admit it. I I love their music. I love the show when I was a kid. And uh it held up watching it with my son when he was younger. I I love all four of those crazy monkeys. Mike was my favorite as a kid because he was too cool for school. And uh, and Peter because he was, you know, the lovable dummy. But uh, but now I like Mickey the best. He holds it all together. So, sorry, Davey. You're, you're, you've only ever been the cute one. But, uh, but anyway, our final movie for this episode, as you might have guessed, is Head, 1968. Directed by Bob Raffleson, written by Jack Nicholson uh, and and Bob, and starring the Monkees. The show ended in 68 because the network wanted, I guess, just more of the same thing for a third season. And uh, Raffleson and the Monkees were like, eh, no thanks. If we can't do something else, we're, we're done. And so the show ended in 68. And this the movie was was made shortly after it was announced that that this show was over and came out later that year. Head was kind of their last hurrah, it sort of killed the monkeys as anything besides a, a recording unit for the next couple of years, you know, until they became a nostalgia act in the eighties. But uh I I don't think anybody went into this film. You know, none of the people who made it went into it thinking it was 
you know, their plan wasn't to kill the monkeys. Uh, it was just meant to be like a change of direction or something. But, uh, you know, something more in, in step with the counterculture stuff that was going on at the time. You know, it was a total bomb. Everybody hated it, including the monkeys. Um, but uh, everybody was wrong because this movie's great. To sum up the plot, hmm. I, I got this part. The plot is that the monkeys have smoked a fat one. Yeah, I mean, that's not actually the plot, but it's clear that everyone involved in the making of this movie was using marijuana quite <laughs> liberally. Right. It starts with the monkeys running down the street away from something. We don't know what. It's not screaming fans, as you might expect from a, a band playing themselves movie like this, but uh, that's that's probably exactly the, the joke. Um, they run over a bridge, and Mickey jumps off the bridge into the water, which is far below. Uh, everything goes all crazy colors, and uh, he gets rescued by mermaids. And, and the Porpoise Song, which is probably the best-known song from from this movie, the only one that was popular at all anyway, um, that that plays over this whole scene. And, uh, and then things start to get weird. It's, basically, it's a series of vignettes strung together, kind of... Dream of Consciousness style. A lot of scenes feel like they could be from the TV show, but then they go off in weird, like absurdist, bizarre, self-referential directions. And it's all cut with snuff films from Vietnam. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> so you don't forget what's going on in the world and uh, you know start having fun watching this movie. There's a certain amount of anger or cynicism in the movie, I guess, but, uh, you know... Like, all the absurdities in here are sort of suggesting that life is just kind of a sick joke. I mean, it it's an anti-war war film in its own way. Yeah, a good number of the sketches have to do with how violence is too real to make funny sketches about it on TV or in a movie. But mostly the trajectory of it is, uh, you know, has the monkeys having various strange adventures they don't understand and then they end up locked inside this black box. Sometimes it's a vacuum. Yeah, the first time they end up in the box, you know, the, the, the metaphorical box that is actually a literal, like, cell-like box, they get there because a vacuum sucks them out of a giant scalp with, uh, with, with big wiry hairs like their dandruff. Out of Victor Mature's giant scalp. Yeah, Victor Mature. Mature? Play, uh... Mature plays the big Victor, who's behind all the monkeys' misfortunes for some reason. Victor Mature. I actually don't. I've never heard his name out loud. I think they say it in this. I think it's just Victor Mature. There's a lot of cool cameos in here. Mm -hmm. Timothy Carey plays a villain or two. Frank Zappa's in there. Annette Funicello. Jack Nicholson and Bob Raffleson walk through shots, but they don't really have much dialogue of any sort. Terry Garr is in here in a very early appearance. Tony Basil is Davy's dance partner in his really cool top hat and tails dance number. And she uh, she choreographed that scene. But mostly it's just the monkeys finding themselves in odd situations together or alone. There's a chance that Bob and Jack were on something when they scripted this. <laughs> Understatement of the year. My favorite sequence is when... Uh, Mickey is shirtless and dying of thirst in the middle of the uh, the endless desert. 
Finally, when all hope is lost, he spots a Coke machine right there in the middle of the desert. And it's not a mirage. It's a real mach Coke machine. But uh, when he gets to it, he finds out it's empty. So, uh, you know, then the surrendering army shows up with a tank. And, uh, you know, well, first an Arab on a horse wants to tell Mickey something and says Psh, to him. And, and Mickey was like, yeah. And and the Arab leans forward and says, Psh, again, and it's subtitled, Psh. And then the Arab tears off on his horse. That's uh, that's my biggest laugh in the in the movie. Every time, I I love I love this movie. But every time I watch it, I feel like uh, I'm I'm finally gonna really like get the point that it's trying to make. Uh, but it it never really quite comes together into something bigger. It's just kind of you know a lark uh, with some you know scattered semi deep clever observations here and there. It's it's just about as empty as, you know, the conversations that you have with your friends when you're really high. Like, I, I feel like that's the only downside to this movie. So, so my thing is that I actually have never seen the Monkees TV show, which, which feels off-brand for me. And I had never seen Head. So this was the first time I'd ever seen this. And this had been on my radar for a very long time. And I kept putting it off for whatever reason. And uh, so I was really thrilled to finally sit down and force myself to watch it. And I was not disappointed. I actually really love this. And uh, but it really it, it's so drug humor. <laughs> it reminded me of The Trip, which was another Jack Nicholson uh, special, you know, like it, it feels like uh, just a complete you know, ridiculous. I mean, like like Peter Torque holding the ice cream and he can't eat it. He just stares at it, you know, and he says, oh, kids are starving. I mean, like, you know, I can't eat it. And and so like he's just stuck with this holding this melting ice cream like that's such weed humor. <laughs> or even uh, Mike Nesmith's whole thing where they have a, a surprise birthday and he gets really angry and he's like, you're saying happy birthday and you're jumping out of the wall and you're scaring me half to death and I'm supposed to be happy about that. Like, it's just such a drug conversation. Like, I think the more weed you smoke, the funnier this movie becomes, like, big time. So you were stoned when you watched it? I, I wish that I had been. I think I will watch this high. That will be my next <laughs> assignment. Because I bet I bet that it will either like tickle me or or freak me out. I mean, I love also like Frank Zappa coming over to uh, Davy Jones and and saying, you know, that that song was pretty white, and he's like, yeah, so am I. <laughs> Actually, that was my favorite part of the whole movie was uh, Daddy's song, the Harry Harry Nielsen song. The white tux, black background switching to black tux, white background effect is awesome in that scene. I do feel that part of what makes this a really standout film, though, is that the editing is just fantastic. Yeah, the whole thing flows seamlessly from one thing to another. And part of the thrill is never being quite sure how the film got from point A to point B to point C, like a like a Monty Python sketch or something. Very dreamlike. And it, yeah, it's it's so it reminded me that a lot of Monty Python. It, it's really it's great. I mean, I don't know. I was just, I was very impressed with this. Cause again, this is another movie where it was like, it's all about commercialism and it's, and it's just owning it. 
and you know, and and that you know, this Coke machine in the desert was just a great little visual metaphor, if nothing else. Like it was genuinely like a funny joke, and and uh, I don't know, just like there is something genuinely. I mean, and it it feels counterculture. Like it feels like a perfect portrait of a time and place and a vibe that is like often repeated but never sort of achieves what's being achieved here and yet at the same time like there's something a little bit disappointing about how the fact that this feels like it's going somewhere really intelligent and it never actually gets there (laughs) yeah you gotta just lay back and let it flow over you don't think about it too much i mean i would fully i would double feature this with the trip except that movie is specifically about capturing the the experience of being on drugs I mean, I guess head is too, but there's no suggestion of actual drug use by any of the characters. It's just baked in. It's just baked into the movie, so to speak. Uh, there's some hookah smoking in the harem scene. That's that's the closest we get. But it would be it would be great if you were high on mushrooms <laughs> uh, to to watch them. But yeah, no, I this was this was very very funny. I don't know. I I got a big kick out of this. There were a handful of really good lines, but I think it was also because I just sort of you watch this. I'm not a pothead, but like you watch it and you're like, oh, this is <laughs> this is like this is the same conversation that people have been having since pot was invented. Basically, like it, it just sort of really like it crystallizes a very specific type of humor. I mean, like, and, and and it's just got a nice surreal touch that sometimes feels menacing, and that's also the best way to to meet out surrealism. You do think that the film is coming close to revealing what it's supposed to be about in that really long scene in the steam room when uh, Peter is listening to the Swami and and hanging on every word. It all sounds so good coming out of the Swami's mouth, like he's truly revealing all of the answers to life's mysteries. But then. Uh, then later when the monkeys are all stuck in the box again towards the end of the movie and, and Peter is sharing with the rest of them what the Swami said, it all just sounds like a bunch of meaningless nonsense. Well, it doesn't, I, I think during that, that scene, it, it, you know, Peter Torks saying like, you know, repeating these, these lessons about like, you know, I know nothing. We all know nothing and we are nothing. And then Davy Jones is like, you know, we're sitting here listening to you and you don't know anything. <laughs> And then he goes and like beats up an entire factory. It's perfect. <laughs> the movie is anti-phony, anti-fame, anti-logic, anti-corporation, anti-rules, anti-violence. You know, just like a good counterculture movie should be. But uh, but then you get this big Davy kicking ass sequence. But uh, you know, the the ironies and, and contradictions are a big part of what make this movie so great. So you know. Definitely the best of all of these movies. The You know, the fact that the Dave Clark 5 movie got a little dark and had at least a little bit of uh, art cinema ambition made it a pleasant surprise. And I'll always love Help, even though it's so dumb. But uh, but Head is the real winner here. Oh, yeah, I, I fully agree. I mean, you know, if we're really, you know, we're talking about bands playing themselves. We already covered Hard Day's Night. Uh, in a previous episode, which was our 1964 musical episode, which is why we didn't discuss it here. We probably should have said that up top, but uh, that's still my ultimate band playing themselves movie. And I think probably for you as well, but I actually, I mean, like I would say that help 
I mean, help to me is going to be top because I just love the Beatles, but head is like kind of up there. <laughs> like head is, was fully fantastic and I can't wait to watch it again. While high on every drug. It was a fun episode. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Uh, you know, a lot of disposable stuff, things that were always meant to be of the moment and not, uh, lasting cinematic treasures, but, uh, you and I are suckers for pop culture, pop culture history, and uh, that's that's what all this stuff is. Well, overall, I enjoyed myself. I feel like uh, at least we got a good playlist out of this, you know? The music was uniformly pretty great. Even some of those Freddie and the Dreamers tunes were okay. <laughs> Agreed. And that that's it for Cinema 60 Season 5. We will be back again. We're going to take a little break for a couple of months here. If you have an episode that you want to see, why don't you reach out to us? You can contact us at cinema60.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, which I will not call X. We are uh, at cinema60podcast. Facebook, we have a Facebook still. You can reach out to us there. Let us know if you're if there's an episode that you want to hear us do, then uh, we're, we're interested. There's plenty of things that we haven't done yet. You can also... Sign up for our Patreon, and then we'll really listen to you. <laughs> We're easy to find on Letterboxd. We each use our uh, our real names on our accounts there. so And, uh, you know, we're easy to interact with there. That's another way. Reach out. Get really high and think really, really hard about Cinema 60. And we'll, we'll hear that. We're going to feel that. All it takes is a little focus and concentration. I'm going to really, I'm going to hone in. It's easy. But thanks for listening. <laughs> Listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>